and welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, ah, April 19th, 2019. Thanks so much for listening in. Uh, we've got a, a, a show, a big show. I should think of adjectives, I guess. <sighs> a great show for everyone today. So thanks so much for tuning in, whether you're tuning in live or listening in the future. Uh, have a great show. I'm not, I'm going to try to go right into it. There's a lot to get to. And start off by playing, just going to go right into it. I know there's a lot happening in the world and I often rant about it and there's a lot to be upset and angry about and also recognize there's a lot of folks doing a lot of really great work out there. So putting that out there for first, the entire show is going to be based on a new book that has come out that I highly recommend that everyone pick up and it's called Headcase, LGBTQ Writers and Artists on Mental Health and Wellness. And the first part of the show will be an interview that I did with Stephanie and Teresa, who are the two editors of the book. Um, we did an interview on Skype a little over a week ago. Uh, so we'll be playing that interview. And then following that, we will be hearing a reading from some of the pieces in the book that are just really incredible and powerful. And they were performed at least, I think, around two months ago at the James Hormel LGBTQ Center at the San Francisco Public Library. And if you'd like to hear more about that center, um, please listen to last week's show. Last week feels like a really long time ago. Um, however, you can check it out at mutinyradio.fm. If you go to the archives and the podcast, last week I spoke with Mason, who uh, works at the San Francisco Public Library and talked a lot about the work that's going on there and upcoming exhibitions and events. So it's a great place to support and see a lot of really great queer artists uh, share their work. Cool. <sighs> okay, so first I'm going to go into this the, the Skype interview. And we, we did it on Skype as they're both based out of uh, New York. So yeah, that's what we did. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm ah, I'm feeling a little bit frazzled today. I don't know why. I, I, I care a lot. I always care a lot about the show. I don't know if it comes across when I speak. Uh, I put a lot of heart and energy into it and want to just... I'm just appreciative of all the folks out there who do a lot of really incredible... I don't know if work's the right word. Spend so much time to amplify voices of folks who deserve to be heard. And so to be able to have the opportunity to put their voices out there. It just feels like a really important thing to do. So I just want to, yeah, there's no video camera here in the station, so you can't see my facial expression. So you'll maybe we'll hear my size throughout. However, just sending, sending this out with a lot of love. So again, here's an interview and then I'll be coming in afterwards. I'll take a bit of a music break. That's another thing. We play music on the show and I wanted to feature queer artists on the show and also like uplifting uh, songs by queer artists. And there are some songs that I was like, oh, this might like be in, in tune with what we're talking about. And then I also wanted to do uplifting ones on, on top of that. So I can perhaps speak more about that later. Uh, so open up the show with a song by Block Party called Tulips. That's the, I think, the club version version of that song. And yeah, we'll be playing some music throughout. So yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And let's start off right now. Okay. Hi, I'm Teresa Theofano. I am a, a licensed clinical social worker and a freelance writer, editor, and I am co-editor with Stephanie Schroeder of the anthology Headcase, LGBTQ Writers and Artists on Mental Health and Wellness. 
Hi, I'm Stephanie Schroeder, um, Teresa's co-editor. I'm a peer advocate uh, in New York City, as well as a writer and editor and activist. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, hoping oh, you both could um, talk about what inspired um, you to put together the book. Teresa inspired me. <laughs> <laughs> you flatter me. <laughs> well, I, I would, um, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about how the project first came into being, if that's okay with you, Steph. Okay, so uh, many years ago, actually um, about a decade ago now, I was working at Rainbow Heights Club in Brooklyn, New York. Um, it is a program for LGBTQ old, um, I almost said older adults, but that's what I do in my day job. It's a program for LGBTQ adults living with severe mental illness. Um, and it's what's called a psychosocial clubhouse program. So it, it provides um, socialization and support rather than a lot of, say, clinical support for folks struggling with their mental health. It is um, the only program of its type that's LGBTQ specific. And I learned a lot while I was working there and I saw a short documentary called What Helps and What Doesn't, which is now available on YouTube. And it featured consumers of mental health services in the queer and trans communities talking about their own care and their perspectives on their own care. And I thought, you know, you, you really don't see much of this out there. You don't hear these voices in the media often. I wonder if there's a book like this out there. Um, and long story short, there wasn't. And so I decided to put one together. Um, I didn't get very far with the project when um, I unexpectedly lost my partner to suicide. And I wasn't ready to pick the project back up for a few years after that. But when I did, it was right around the time that I was getting to know Stephanie first as a Facebook friend and then as an in-person friend. Um, and from her memoir, which was about her own experiences with her mental health in part, I thought she was a kindred spirit and would be kind of a dream collaborator. And lo and behold, she is. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. That's so that's great. how this came into being, yeah. So when you decided to move forward, what was the process like for um, having a call to for people to submit um, their their stories? I can talk about that. Um, so when we did, so when we finally decided to you know just go for it, we created an online call for submissions, a WordPress blog that had you know our parameters, uh, kind of suggested ideas, and we initially said, oh, we're going to probably put fifteen to twenty. Um, submissions into this book, you know, and we ended up with now 38. Wow. Um, so that's quite the difference. Um, the, the, the call for submissions went, I wouldn't say viral, but it got pretty far across, well, across the country and uh, across the world, I'd say, because we have some international contributions. Yeah, it was shared very widely, and we got a lot, a lot, a lot of submissions. Mm -hmm. And the quality of the submissions were... Uh, quite excellent for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Great. Um, so what was the selection process like? Um, 
You know, we really wanted to make sure that we included a wide cross-section of voices from within the queer and trans communities in the book. Mm -hmm. So we were mindful about um, making sure that underrepresented voices Mm -hmm. were in the anthology. And we also wanted to get a nice mix of um, types of contributions. So there's uh, there are a lot of first-person narratives. Both Stephanie and I contributed first-person essays, uh, narratives of our own. But there are also um, poetry submissions. There's visual art, um, photography, drawings, um, uh, a wonderful graphic, like mini graphic novel contribution. Um, and we 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 really kept an eye out for sort of an intersectional approach to uh including people in the in the book mm-hmm. and we agreed on almost everything which is just amazing like the contributions the, the submissions that we got in like stephanie said they were by and large fantastic and we we loved all the same ones <laughs> so nice. that was really easy to yeah easily <laughs> together yeah yeah i'd imagine uh when one uh, collaborates creatively with someone, there can be a lot, of, there might be chances for people not to see eye to eye. So I imagine that certainly helped, especially with a topic as serious as, as this. It was probably helpful that you're able to agree on a lot. Right. Definitely. Nice. Um, okay, next question would be, um, what were some surprising or unexpected experiences that you came across while you were putting together this book? Well, I guess one surprising thing is that the quality, as we've already discussed in the submissions, I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one thing that was surprising that is that it actually wasn't surprising that a lot of the submissions, or maybe all of them, um, were about the negative experiences queer and trans people had with the mental health health mm-hmm. system um, kind of across the board. So yeah. it was the unsurprising surprise. Yes, yes. Um, We've gotten that question a few times about what what has surprised, what surprised us about putting the book together when we've been yeah. on a, at events presenting mm-hmm. the book. People ask this, and um, really the answer is not all that much. Yeah. Not all that much. Um, and I think both of us, you know, we've been part of the New York City LGBTQ communities for a long time. Mm-hmm. We've both been very active around queer mental health. Mm. So I, I think maybe there wasn't a whole lot that could really shock us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can see yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So um, I was at the reading at the San Francisco Public Library uh, last month, and mm-hmm. something that really was uh, trying to find the accurately describe how I felt was hearing some of these pieces from folks from decades ago and how queerness and transness has been pathologized over time and to an extent still is. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping the two of you could talk a little bit about that. Um, well, very medically speaking and psychologically speaking, um, you know, um, homosexuality in quotes, which kind of was an across the board description for a lot of things, um, was considered a mental illness until 1973 by the medical community and psychiatric community. Um, 
that's no longer the case in most realms, except the right wing and re- a lot of religious communities, and a, and a lot of other people still think it's it may and make the that that archaic argument that you know being queer, being trans, whatever, um, is a mental illness and something to, that needs to be cured. And you know we have this you know kind of rapid fire um, banning of conversion therapy, which, right. therapy around the country. It seems to keep moving through state after state, which is great. Yes, yes. Not moving federally. Um, but so that's great. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it's 2019. I can't believe there's even an argument for conversion yes. therapy. Yeah. Um, so that's on the very institutional side. Um right. I think people are more welcoming and understanding and just know more queer people. That always helps, right? You know, yes, a queer person yes. and, and supportive of queer people. It doesn't, I don't think that necessarily translates into uh, rights or other support. Yes, like, yes. I think people, and, and I also think people, meaning not queer and trans people, don't even know that we can still get fired. We can still be denied housing. We can still be denied medical access mm-hmm. and all those kind of things. Um, and, and all those things are being rolled back by the Trump administration. Yeah. Yeah. At the, um, at the event in San Francisco, you know, we have one of our contributors, uh, Guy Albert, who spoke about sexual mm-hmm. orientation uh conversion what's the e4 stuff uh so initiatives social, social sexual orientation change <laughs> i can't remember what it is. Oh. anyway he, he spoke about um conversion therapy and efforts to outlaw it change efforts change efforts yeah and um, I, I think there was some shock in the room that this was even still a thing that had to be done. You know, it feels like we're in the dark ages. But, but one of the goals we had with the book was also not only to explore how sexual orientation and gender identity have been pathologized, mm-hmm. but to look at what people's lives are when you sort of disentangle that historical association of pathology with queerness Mm -hmm. with trans identity Mm -hmm. you know what comes after that what does day-to-day life look like for a person who's lgbtq and maybe struggling with their mental health yes besides all that outside of all of that you know and both stephanie and i are openly in those situations ourselves you know we both have mental health concerns we're both out queer women and um you know that's that's what our own work explores alongside many others mm-hmm. wow <laughs> yeah i'm just uh, t- taking it all in and letting it sit for a moment yeah um not the lightest of topics no no usually on the show it's not the lightest of topics so i love that i support that yeah i mean important things that need to be be talked about and discussed and thought about and Mm -hmm. i really appreciate that you put together you know this book and you featured so many so many voices and just really it's fairly validating i think for a lot of us i can only speak for myself however i'd imagine (laughs) for the larger context it's just so great just to hear and also have an understanding of history which i think has been denied so many of us from Mm -hmm. what people have actually been through Mm 
I, I really appreciate that, um, that perspective and, and your words on it, because this book, it was a labor of love for us very much so. Um, and I don't think I'm being egotistical when I say I think this is a really incredibly important book. It needs to be out there. And it's not because I'm one of the co-editors. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's because something like this did not exist. Mm -hmm. And 38 of us worked really hard to make sure that now it exists. Yes, yeah. that's great. And you were on a, a book tour. So I was curious if that was still happening. And if so, um, what places you were going next? So we have three uh well, in terms of a tour, I mean, I guess we're still touring. We're touring in New York City, our home base. Yeah. And we have three <laughs> yeah. We have three gigs this month, three events this month. Um in New York City Saturday, April thirteenth from five to ten will be at Dyke Night, um, presented by Dyke Bar Takeover. Okay. In Brooklyn. Um, all of this is also on our website, which is oh. headcaseanthology.com. Great. Thursday, uh, April 18th, 7 and 9, we'll be reading at Blue Stockings. Oh, yay! Town. <laughs> Friday, um, April 26th, we'll be at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division at the Center. Okay. Reading, um, and presenting with. Uh, Esther Rappaport. Esther, Esther Rappaport. She's a from, Tel Aviv-based psychologist yeah. who's oh, presenting wow. about her upcoming book on bisexuality and psychoanalysis. Wow. Yeah. So that should be interesting. All of those. Great. So look um, at our website. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, yeah. we... We did events in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia, um, but here's something a lot of people don't know, which is that if you get a book published, unless you are really famous, it is <laughs> unlikely you're going to get sent on tour by your publisher, and our publisher was a nonprofit and academic press, yeah. so we, we put all this together ourselves, mm -hmm. um, and you know we've gotten this wonderful response from people um, on social media going, come to my town, come to my town, and we're going, we'll be happy to come come to your town sponsor find somebody to sponsor us yes yeah. contact the universities for us to come out and speak and subsidize okay. our travel yeah. otherwise you know we we both work full-time at nonprofits. um mm -hmm. in addition to doing this work and it's just <laughs> we can't jet set as much as we'd love to we'd um, love to will help so, yes. yeah well, that's a good idea well, hopefully some listeners will have some contacts and get in touch about that that'd be great yeah so folks can order the book on your website. Um, is that correct? Yeah, we have we have a link on um, headcaseanthology.com for people to order directly from the publisher, Oxford University Press. And we encourage people also to look for it at their local independent bookstore. Ask for it if it's not there. Support your indies. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, great. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share either about the book or anything else that's related? Well, one thing that we talk about, um, when we're, when we're talking about the book in general is that we think queer stories save queer lives and, and creating and reclaiming our own narratives and publishing them is mm -hmm. so important. Um, you know, and, and not even only publishing them, storytelling events, Queer storytelling events, queer writing, queer performance, it's all yes. very important. It's important yeah. to, to do, it's important to attend and support. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because only we can tell our own stories. That is true. Yes. Absolutely. 
Um, and I, I will add also that Stephanie and I are going to soon be hard at work on our next book together, um, which um, we have had the idea for for a while, but we we haven't made a whole lot of headway just yet because we've been so busy with this first one, Head Case, um, <laughs> that I'm really looking forward to our future collaborations. We're going to keep writing about the hard stuff and we're going to keep putting it out there. Excellent. Well, very much look forward to hearing about that. Thank you. Cool, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share or add before we go? I don't think so. All okay. right. Well, big thank you to Stephanie and Teresa, and we'll be hearing more from them in just a little bit. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. I'm feeling a bit frazzled today. Just going to be honest about my uh, my state of mind. I don't know. <sighs> try to prepare for the show as much as I can and oftentimes get here and oh, there's so much to get to. Okay. And we're doing it live. So it's not, and I do recognize that one could edit it and I don't really edit the show. So there's, this, this is what happens. Cool. All right. Excellent. <sighs> so as I mentioned before, we're gonna take a bit of a music break and coming up next, we are going to hear the reading uh, selected pieces from Headcase, and just, really grateful that's that's what's coming up for me right now so I'll play some music and we'll be back in just a little bit so please do stay tuned give me a pair of pectorals like diana nyan i want to swim 89 miles give me a set of deltoids like Tracy Calkins I wanna be strong like those Amazons I wanna learn to dribble like Annie Myers I wanna learn to shoot like Cheryl Miller I wanted to play for the Dallas Diamonds and live with Martina like Nancy Lieberman Strong, strong Strong, strong like an Amazon Badminton like Utami Kennard I want to smash that birdie like Christy Cook I want to acquire the perfect drop shot Have total control over that shuttlecock Strong, strong Strong, strong like an Amazon I want to run in the Boston Marathon I want to go, go, go like Allison Rowe Tennis like Billie Jean King I want to serve and volley like Martina can I want to be strong like an Amazon I want to smack the ball like Ivana Gulagam Strong, strong Strong, strong like an Amazon I want to learn to 
drive like Janet Guthrie I wanna zoom, zoom like Cha-Cha Downey. I wanna be strong like an Amazon I wanna be strong, strong like an Amazon Division with one of my favorite songs of theirs, Manada. I used to do a dance to it back when I was in college. Ah, and before that, we heard Frank with Amazons. So coming up now, we have the reading of from Headcase that happened on March 5th of this year at the main library branch in the uh, LGBTQIA Center of the San Francisco Library. So we're going to play that, and then we'll be back uh, after. Stay tuned. for joining us this evening. Thank you everyone for coming from out of town, the people that are here from out of town. And um, I'm really excited about this event. Thank you for joining us tonight for this reading of Head Case, LGBTQ Writers on Mental Health and Wellness. I'm Lane Goldzer, I'm a librarian here at the San Francisco Public Library and I work with the Hormel Collections. Um, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Ohlone land and um, that it is, uh, that that's important that we recognize where we are. Um, moving on to the space where we are in this building, uh, this is the Hormel Center, and this is one of the library's affinity centers. It holds a selection of Hormel's book collection. There's also, we have about 10,000 books, 200 archival collections, videos, magazines, newspapers, and journals. And um, please come and visit and come say hello to me. Or go up to the archives on the sixth floor. They have a lot of unique materials. Um, we, ho we host a lot of programs here. We have regular programs. We have book readings. We have exhibits. 
Now, without further ado, um, I would like to introduce our editors, Stephanie Schroeder and Teresa Theofano. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie Schroeder, JD, is a freelance writer based in New York City. Her work has been anthologized in That's Revolting, I love that book, Queer Strategi Strategies for Resisting Assimilation, Here Come the Brides, Reflections on Lesbian Love and Marriage, and Easy to Love but Hard to Live with, Real People, Invisible Disabilities, T True Story, and True Stories. Schroeder is a part-time peer advocate and author of the memoir Beautiful Wreck, Sex, Lies, and Suicide. Teresa. Just Teresa is fine. <laughs> <laughs> LMSW is a freelance writer slash editor and full-time social worker working with LGBT older adults in New York City. The author of Queer Quotes and a contributor to numerous anthologies and websites including ExoJane and GLBTQ.com. Diofano has been involved in mental health advocacy and LGBTQ movement building for years. She is the co-founder of the NYC Queer Mental Health Initiative, a peer-based support network based in Brooklyn. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hello, is this working? Yeah. So thanks to Lane so much for working with us to get this uh, event organized over months and months and months, um, back and forth emails. Can you hear this? Um, and I want to, our, our bios are now a couple years old, so I'm actually a full-time peer specialist, and Lee, and Teresa's an LCSW. So fancy. So fancy. Um, <laughs> thank you, you've been lovely. We'll, we'll head out now. And I want to tell you who we are here with. Guy Albert is Guy Albert, PhD, is a licensed psychologist and Jungian analyst working with adolescents adults and couples in Berkeley, California. He's an adjunct faculty for JFK University, a former adjunct faculty for Sophia University, and a formal clinical director at Pacific Institute. Lynn Breedlove helps outsiders live in a world that wants them, to, wants them dead by creating punk songs, essays, novels, solo shows, and screenplays, and advertising for his latest transportation entrepreneurial endeavor. He's always working on a new form. And Hannah Wilson is a storyteller, retired psychotherapist, and former radio producer. She's the author of the award-winning memoir, Writing Fury Home, from which, not our fault, her piece in our book, um, was adapted. So that's who's up here. And we want to thank them for joining us tonight. Thank you, um, thank you everybody. Stephanie and I are so excited to be here. Uh, we're in from New York City for just a few days, and we came here to do this event before we head to LA for a few, a few events out that way. Um, and we would love to just tell you a little bit about the book itself before we begin with the readings. Um, and after everybody has had a chance to read, we'll be happy to take some questions. So, um, what we'd love to tell you about Headcase is that there is no other book quite like this one. Um, I was working at a psychosocial clubhouse program, which is uh, a program serving adults with serious mental illness in Brooklyn, where I live. Um, this clubhouse program was specifically for LGBTQ people. I loved working there. Um, I saw a short documentary film while I was employed there called What Helps and What Doesn't, 
and it had a number of consumers of the clubhouse's services talking about their participation in their own care. And I thought, why isn't there a book with these voices represented? Where's, where's the book that should be out there that talks about this? Um, so I decided to make that book. This was 2009. Um, I started putting together a book proposal. I used to work in book publishing before I became a social worker. I thought I could be the one to do this, sure. Started the project um, and in 2010, um, lost my partner to suicide, put the project down, didn't know if I could ever pick it back up. A few years later, I did feel ready to pick it back up. And I had connected with Stephanie, who I met via Facebook. I don't remember exactly how. I guess through, through mutual friends, we were debating some queer social issue or another. <laughs> and <laughs> I had seen her book in um, a radical bookstore on the Lower East Side. She had written a memoir. And I decided after we became Facebook friends that I wanted to buy a copy from her and read it. And I did. And I thought, this person seems like a kindred spirit and she needs to come meet me for coffee. I'm going to make this happen somehow. I'm going to make her my friend. <laughs> so we did a, around 2013, 2014, we met up. We had a cup of coffee. I told her about this project I was thinking about picking back up now that I'd had some time to recover from this tragedy in my life. And she said, yes. Although I was terrified when you said, will you be my co-editor? My co-editor? Yeah, but I still. By the way, if anyone is standing and want, there's some seats up here. We don't bite. We don't bite, yeah. Unless you ask nicely. <laughs> so what we ended up doing, we, we first envisioned an anthology that was all of these voices of, of peers or consumers or whatever words you want to use to describe people who are engaged in receiving mental health treatment, because both of us openly do. Um, but what ended up happening was that when we started shopping the book proposal around, we found um, an editor who was really willing to invest in working with us, but felt strongly that some provider points of view needed to be incorporated as well. So we ended up um, opening up a call for submissions and closing it and opening it and closing it and taking on a number of additional pieces to really flesh things out. Um, what we ended up with is a collection of 37 art and art pieces and essays plus a foreword um, and we ended up liaising with a whole whole lot of people to make this project come together. It was I think the thing that I've worked on hardest in my entire life. There's never been a project quite like this uh, for me. And um, we talk a lot, Stephanie and I, about terminology. Um, we, we decided to call the book Head Case, which can be controversial, right? But we talk a lot about reclaiming terminology, um, deciding what it is that we want to call ourselves, what it means to take words back right, and uh, reappropriate them or take their power away or imbue them with new power. We wrote a blog post for Oxford University Press, our publisher, about this very topic. Um, you know, it, it can be very controversial. I work with LGBT older adults, as you, I think you heard in my bio, and that's not a, a community in which queer is really used. But in the younger generations, homosexual really isn't used, and some of my clients would prefer to 
to call themselves homosexual still do call themselves homosexual. Anyway, I digress. What I do want to say <laughs> is how important it is for us to name ourselves, to reclaim these terms, right? I want to talk also before we begin the readings about trigger warnings. I feel very conflicted about trigger warnings because anything can be triggering to anyone at any time. Um, this book, this book is about LGBTQ warning. mental health, so consider it one big trigger warning that you're looking at right now. If you Huge. hear something, if you hear something that is hard for you to contend with and you need to get up and step out, that's okay. We, no one will be insulted. Please take care of yourself. Do what you need to do. But please know we're going to be talking a lot about medications. We're going to be talking about suicidality. We're going to be talking about um, identity and discrimination and conversion therapy and much, much more. So, yeah, when we met on Facebook, we were both activists in the LGBTQ community in New York City, in the arts community, in the mental health community. And I, what I was doing when I met Teresa um, was kind of very grassroots, kind of underground, even one-on-one -on -one activism in the mental health arena. Um, one of my things that I was doing was helping people, they would contact me on Facebook and everybody knew like who were providers who were licensed and couldn't do this kind of stuff themselves to just direct people towards me. Um, to hook them up with free care, with free medications, with maybe medication exchanges with people who had, you know, things that they needed, which is what my essay is about. Um, and then I, I was working in public relations and I got out of it, um, <laughs> which is all I'll say, and became a peer. And I work in a homeless shelter for, me mental health homeless shelter for women ages 45 plus in Manhattan. Um, and I've been doing that, well, I was part-time until four weeks ago, um, and I've been doing that a year and a half. And it's really rewarding to, you know, put myself out there as someone who is living with a mental illness, um, as a woman who's 45 plus, and it's, yeah. I, and I feel like all my training in the community, doing grassroots work, I can bring to this job. Um, I just want to say a couple words about uh, the Queer Mental Health Initiative, which was something else that Lane had mentioned that I've done. So in 2014, I joined forces with another activist in Brooklyn to start a peer-based mental health um, network with uh, twice-monthly support group meetings, peer-facilitated, and an online resource guide that I still maintain to this day. There was a need for this. It wasn't being filled. We said, okay, let's just do it as volunteers, which ended up not being terribly sustainable. It's since folded, um, except for the resource guide component. But my friend Lynn has uh, really instilled in me this belief that if you see a need in a community, you step up to fill it even if it doesn't pay you or even if it doesn't pay you very much. Um, so that is still, that's still up and running. Um, the resource guide is unfortunately New York City specific, so I don't think it will do folks here much good, um, but in our book, there's a resource listing at the end that includes websites, books, um, different kinds of organizations. things, that, organizations, things that might be helpful to people. Yeah, yeah. So All right, with, yeah, let's start reading. Okay, so we're gonna take it away uh, with Lynn Breedlove kicking things off. People always ask me if I'm a man or a woman. I say, what are you asking me for? Do I look like I know? That's not actually in the book. I just, it was the opening line of my solo show. I just want to see if it was still funny. 
Apparently it is. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. I think I, didn't you ask for us to write this like in 2010 or something? 2009. Yeah, so I was like in the middle of some fucked up shit. I was like as crazy as probably I've ever been. And Trust Me, I'm a Doctor is the name of it because I actually have a tattoo that says, Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. <laughs> and it has a scary guy with a knife, so... It doesn't work out too good when you go to the doctor. You got to put like a sweatband on it or something because otherwise they get the chainsaw. That's bad. So anyway, I'm visible, queer, ADD, trans guy with authority issues, a combo of shy and cocky and a body that has most people confused or pissed. So I spent 15 years slowly killing myself with drugs. I bought the hype that I didn't belong here. Never did like the idea of a doctor's office where your ass is hanging out of a paper dress while he's in the white coat. And guess which one is dressed for success? Whenever I went in with my drug problem or my queerness, they never held back with the comments or a look who did this to you. You did this to you. A look of, if I let them diagnose me, who knows what else they'd find. Paranoid, anxious, narcissist, hot mess, BP, OCD, ADD, ACDC, no ID, the AMAs, DSM, epithet list is endless. It's all true. The idea of DM DSM is to make enough insanity categories to lock anyone up at any time. Convenient, like laws, to suddenly, selectively enforce a forgotten rule whenever certain people give you trouble. Pissing on a wall in public, if you're rich, not a problem. If you're homeless, you're a sex offender. Society edges you out of anything but a jail job. Class war from the inside out. I always self-medicate. If I need medication, I'd rather go to the corner than a white man in a white coat. I figure I know more and these days care more about me than they do. So I study up, treat myself with therapy and vitamins. Once I had health care for a minute, so I went to the local hospital shrink. I felt crazy just filling out the form. Are you paranoid that people are watching you? Yeah, I think the government is gonna add this to my files, which already fills a whole extra room somewhere and lock me up in a straight jacket. Straight jacket, ain't telling you shit. I said, hey doc, I think I have ADD, can you help me? He says, what are the symptoms? All leaned back in his chair, looking at me like I'm a mouse in a cage, and he can't tell, girl mouse, boy mouse. Well, let's see, I forget stuff, lose things, spaz out, say rude shit, say too much, haven't said enough, get mad, mood swing, impulse shop, fall down, and I'm not even drunk. Famous for chopping up rubber dicks half naked, which makes angry young feminists happy in the 90s, but my parents don't get it, so I don't know whether to be proud or ashamed. Energy issues, disorganized, late, impatient, frustrated by technology, math, Judith Butler, and any other academic jargon I see as a special code like legalese, algebra, or medical terms. <clears throat> Judith who? <laughs> Never mind. I used to drink, smoke weed, and do speed. Drug dyslexia, speed calming down. Pot and beer speeded me up. Now I use smokes, java, and sugar in a vain attempt to focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's looking at me like I'm the mouse that keeps choosing the cocaine button over food pellets or water until it dies. So, do I have it? Probably. What do you mean, probably? If you think you do, then you probably do. So this is what 20 years of school looks like. What can we do? Do you want drugs? Nope, tried that, didn't work. Well, then I can't help you. Okay, it's been lovely. 
So I go back to my previous plan, 12-step programs. They say it's cult, but hey, it's cult that benefits people. So I brainwash myself out of suicidal sabotage because like Pink says in the ADD national anthem, I'm a hazard to myself. Amino acids, ginkgo, vitamins, green superfoods, switch the bike messenger job for dog walk, switch the bike messenger job out for dog walker, social worker, cabbie, from punk front man to comic to writer to fool who shares ideas on getting through hard shit translated into layman's terms for the cult phobic, back to front man. Slow down. Age, gracefully, or not. Dharma talks brainwash me to sleep because things do fall apart, and when they do, I channel my impulsivity into faith as I step off cliffs with intention. Wake up more patient, pray, and meditate because if I'm gonna be fanatical, why not be fanatical about sanity? Ride my bike in less traffic. Run my pit bull at 3 a.m. down the middle of deserted suburban streets. Quit smoking, smell flowers, hear crickets, mourn, celebrate, sing. After 35 years of nonstop, no plot action, a bed break is in order. I may be all I can handle right now. You can only handle three projects at a time, and babe is a project. <laughs> Boundaries or limits on one's own behavior. Oh, I thought it was about controlling other people. Okay. <laughs> Life coaches and therapists listen without judgment, or at least keep it to themselves, collaborate on solutions. Walking meditation, toggling, ever outward expanding, compassion visualization while walking because sitting is impossible, tai chi while watching action movies at 4 a.m. It's my favorite. <laughs> Late night, quiet, focus, feng shui bachelor pad. When things look orderly, I feel sane. Still call my cell phone and run around the house until I find it under my car, but not every day. Could I have done that with Adderall? Maybe. But when my pals start chopping that shit up and snorting it, vitamin B looks like a good option. Sometimes I do too much. Talk on the phone while slipping in a puddle I made while steam cleaning carpets to show the apartment which I better sublet in the next five days because I do not have rent. While I am booking a tour that I am leaving for in a week and right when asking the guy at the bike store about cheap wheels to replace the ones that got stolen when I forgot several times to pick up a bike my friend loaned me, which I finally went to get it. I forgot the key to the lock and right when the bike parts guy picks up the phone, I slip in the puddle left by the steam cleaner and fly throwing the phone and the computer through the air and sprain my ankle a week before I was supposed to drive around the country on a solo tour. And then I'm mad. I can't control anything and I have to ask for help, which I hate. Call a pal. Give thanks for what I have. Hugs, acceptance, gratitude, a body, and a brain that mostly work. Then, halfway through the tour, when the never expected happens, I get evicted and mom has a stroke all at the same time. I'm able to deal with legalese lawyers, doctors, and two languages on two continents in between crying because compartmentalizing feelings, multitasking, and switching gears at high speeds with an open heart is the exact combo of talents needed right now, which doctors would like to tamp down. <laughs> I'd turn my risk-taker entrepreneurial gene into a nonprofit that provides safety for my people with an international trademark and a crew that helps me implement my dreams and at the same time shows up for my ailing mom and my community while making art out of it. My community shows up for me because I've shown up for them with my whole self, not some man-made-up chemical self, and everything works out perfect. Just putting one foot in front of the other, right off the edge of the cliff, no net. I'm either gonna walk on air or sprout a squirrel suit or get caught on a branch or land in the river like Butch Cassidy. So, if a doctor wants to fix what books call crazy, thanks, but that's what makes me think of the one line that's gonna explain everything just as I walk on stage. Pressure, sparks, dots connect to translate gender politics into simplicity and make it funny or deeper, whatever is needed to get through to humans. Because I don't need to fix or medicate. I'm not a problem. I'm a comic, a punk, an, e an evolutionary, a translator, a pal, a writer, a person 
who create systems to help. I thought Lenny might start things off with a bang, so I, I, think, I think I chose well. Thank you so much. My essay is called Crowdsourcing My Antipsychotic. I'm in recovery from bipolar disorder. I've tried to live medication-free and failed. It's not a failure I'm ashamed of. What I am ashamed of is this country's broken healthcare system and how difficult that system has made it for me to obtain my life-saving medication. Writers generally don't make much money, and I've been really hard-pressed to pay for my New York City rent over the past several years while covering my other living expenses. These, these days, I'm just eking by. The last full-time job I had was at a small midtown Manhattan public relations firm. The job was horrendous, and the benefits were worse. Among other problems, I had no health insurance. My colleagues, all straight women, had coverage through their husbands or parents. I made an okay middle-class salary, but after taxes and expenses, it hardly covered my quarterly visits to my private psychiatrist and weekly visits with my private therapist, in addition to the cost of my four psychiatric medications. Not having health insurance was an enormous drawback of my job. I take four psychotropic medications to remain sane and stable after three attempted suicides and one stay in the loony bin. I've been on the same four meds, an antidepressant, a mood stabilizer, an anti-anxiety, and an antipsychotic for well over a decade, and they work really well. But in late 19, 2013, I suddenly came to the end of my supply of my atypical antipsychotic that I take every night. This particular medication has a bad reputation in some circles. Some people even agitate against its prescribing and the prescribing of it, but it has saved my life. Here I was in a dire situation. I made too much money to get this antipsychotic from the big pharma manufacturer's patient assistance program, but I didn't make enough to afford 600 plus bucks a month for one bottle of 30 pills. And I'd already talked to some low-level people over at this drug manufacturer, who I cannot name. They were not helpful and never had been. They acted like I was a nut for even asking about something outside of their program. Um, and I wrote to the new CEO of this company, but it didn't do anything it made me, except make me feel like I had done something. Being both a writer and a publicist, I decided to write about and publicize my plight to highlight the problem of the lack of decent mental health care in the United States circa 2013. So I wrote a blog post about my situation and then posted it on Facebook, asking folks if I could have their unused antipsychotic medication. Within minutes, several people messaged me with kind offers of their lef leftover meds and suggestions about other inexpensive ways and places to purchase the antipsychotic I needed to remain stable. They had really innovative suggestions about how to find this low copays for other people to refill their dormant scripts and then give them to me, getting samples from their docs and handing them over, and other unique schemes and scams. This was the first time I knew of uh, antipsychotic being crowdsourced on social media. I made appointments with various people all over the city. We met for coffee or a sandwich, and I listened to their stories, sometimes for several hours. My reward at the end of all these encounters was a bottle, or several bottles of pills. One correspondent, who would only speak to me on the phone and didn't want anything in writing, met me and handed over a paper bag full of pills, most of which I didn't need. He asked me not to mention his name to anyone. 
and also said that I shouldn't be putting out calls for meds on Facebook. Soliciting drugs is illegal. Don't you know that? Don't put that shit on Facebook. It's, a, it's way too dangerous. And go see a doctor to get a prescription. He didn't comprehend that it wasn't an issue with a doctor or a script, but with the price of meds. The incredible variety of medications I received was amazing, and the generosity of people emptying their medicine cabinets for me was very moving, especially from those like that one guy who were generally in the closet about their own mental illness, but were meet, willing to meet me in public anyhow. After my community of queers, artists, activists, and other kindred spirits provided me with their leftovers, I counted all the individual tablets I had on hand. Antipsychotic pills from those who were no longer taking them and were kind enough to pass them on, from both acquaintances and strangers who answered my Facebook call, and from random packets of samples hidden in heretofore unknown corners of my apartment. The count done, I had exactly enough of the antipsychotic medication to last me until my 50th birthday in September 2013, which was 45 days away. That was not a long time, and I didn't have insurance or any additional expendable income, and I wasn't qualified for any additional fiscal support or discount programs that my chain pharmacy, except for my chain pharmacy prescription discount card for the uninsured because my barely middle-class income excluded me from all existing financial assistance. I fought many battles with Big Pharma, the manufacturer of my antipsychotic, which has sometimes given me my free 90-day supply and sometimes not. Big Pharma doesn't really care whether I live or die. I'm just one individual broke lesbian trying to th thrive in this psychopharmacological wilderness. I can never say that. It's all about profits for them, and giving away free drugs doesn't make money. The script for my antipsychotic that my private psychiatrist wrote me the last time I saw him was, would have been $2,226.97, and that was with my pharmacy RX discount. My horrible experience of being off my antipsychotic a year earlier was one I did not care to repeat. I had felt totally crazy and helpless that I couldn't do anything about it. So I quit my full-time middle-class job in order to qualify for a public health care scheme that provides low-income New York City artists with deeply discounted care. In the past five years, I've earned 21.584463853%. Of what I made at my former job, and now I'm struggling to f survive financially. You know, this was like years ago, <laughs> and now I'm rich because <laughs> it really pays. <laughs> um, in the artist center program at a Brooklyn-based hospital, participants bartered volunteer work as making as well as making artistic contributions in exchange for healthcare services. This was not insurance, and I was assessed a fine by the IRS for not having purchased insurance in 2015. However, a $95 fine is far less than even a quarter of the cost of a single month's premium. A plan to cover my meds under the ACA would cost me 500 plus bucks a month. Added to my monthly premium would be an annual deductible, plus co-pays for doctor and for medication, and some of my, some of my drugs weren't in most insurance formularies. This expenditure was impossible for me. Plus, my private psychiatrist, whom I saw for more than 12 years, doesn't accept any insurance. Here's my cost breakdown. I see a psychiatrist in an outpatient clinic in the Brooklyn Hospital every other month for 15 bucks. My four prescriptions are $2 each. For an additional $15, I also visit my psychologist every three months to round out my mental health program. So, 
My bi-monthly investment in my mental health care is around $38. I'm stable, I've made no attempts to hurt myself in the past 15 years, and I work on a freelance basis and, make an enormous, and also make enormous progress on my personal artistic projects and artistic endeavors. A wise investment indeed in what I can afford. So passing prescription drugs may be illegal on Facebook and elsewhere, even when no money is exchanged, but being forced into that activity is one activity to keep myself alive and well is truly immoral. The Affordable Care Act is a program making insurance companies even richer by fleecing consumers. It's clear to me that the ACA enhances, and again, this was a couple years ago, rather than detracts from people's health care choices, and it's a fiction for a lot of folks. Health insurance, companies, health insurance premiums are rising while numbers and types of services covered are being reduced or eliminated. Necessary treatments have become much, much, much costlier for consumers. In 2016, I qualified for Medicaid um, when I went to the hospital in Brooklyn to renew my artist membership. This was actually a blessing. Free health care or 50 cents meds. In 2017, I didn't qualify for Medicaid, but for an essential health care plan with a $20 monthly pr premium. I had to change doctors, um, all of them, but I thought, if I have to change doctors, it may as well be free, right? Um, and yes, I know under Trump it's only going to get worse, but that doesn't obviate the position I'm in not being able to consult with the doctors of my choice. I keep needing an update for the end of this chapter, but the update keeps changing. Life ebbs and flows, but healthcare shouldn't. Healthcare is a right, and this tenuous fix that I and others have on the ability to access and continue to receive life-saving treatments, including medications, shouldn't depend on the whims of politicians or pharmaceutical manufacturers. Anyone with a life-threatening illness knows it's enough to deal with. We shouldn't have to stand on the quicksand of constantly changing healthcare policy in this country. It's far past time for healthcare that's not attached to any employer or a romantic partner. All right. So we are listening right now to a reading from the book Headcase that folks can purchase now. We're going to take a bit of a music break and we'll be back in a little bit. So please do stay tuned. Dream 
where our hearts are bursting at the seams Where the light that we shine never dies And our souls have learned how to fly No such thing as a fear of the dark And our hearts are outside of the box And our love, yes, our love lights the way And I know that we'll be there someday Maybe I'm stupid, maybe I'm dumb But I know that I'm not the only one Someday we'll see the error of our ways Yeah, we'll smile, yeah, we'll laugh it all away Till that day you can say what you Still, I love you. Yes, I love you. Still, I love you. Yes, I love you. Still, I love you. Welcome, light the way, 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 light the way. Review. That was Star Amarasu with Light the Way from the documentary Major. It's an incredible film and an incredible soundtrack, and highly recommend folks see the film if you haven't and get the soundtrack as well. It's really beautiful. So, coming up next, we are continuing the reading from Headcase, which happened in March of this year. Hey, thank you, Stephanie. Yes, next we're going to hear from Hannah. So, I'm going to read part of the essay that's in the book that's adapted from my memoir, Writing Fury Home. Not our fault. My mother and Marion first became friends watching the Army McCarthy hearings on my parents' television. It was April 1954, a month before my third birthday. I imagined myself toddling around the small wooden cottage in University Heights, oblivious to the sound of Senator Joseph McCarthy's voice, ranting about communists and dripping with queer bathing innuendo. None of us could have guessed what McCarthy's hateful voice portended, that eventually the brutal homophobia of that era would fracture all our lives. Like us, Marion and her husband lived in a cluster of cottages with a shared lawn used by Rutgers University for its married student housing. Dad was getting his PhD in chemistry on the GI Bill. Marion had a particular interest in the army hearings because she had served in the WACs, the Women's Army Corps during World War II. With their husbands off at the university, the two women sat in front of the small black and white TV screen, watching intently, each compelled by a hidden secret aspect of themselves. Marion had had women lovers in the WACs. My mother, Gloria, though not a card-carrying communist, was a leftist, quietly sympathetic to the cause in those chilling years of the House Un-American Activities Committee blacklistings. The three months of hearings bonded them. 
They became close friends and spent their days together talking, laughing, going fishing at the nearby river. Then one day, Marion told my mother how beautiful love could be between women. My mother swooned. She fell deeply, madly in love with Marion. She longed to take me and go off with Marion and have a life together. But in that era, where people routinely lost their jobs or were arrested for being gay, this was not in the realm of possibility. Gloria and Marion were lovers for two years, together during the day where their husbands were off at the university. Then one day, Marion did not show up and was not at home. Days went by with no sign of her. Gloria had to go to Marion's husband and ask about her. He said his wife had had a nervous breakdown and was in a mental hospital. Marion returned several weeks later and told my mother, Gloria, I'm cured. We can't do this anymore. We just have to be good wives, spread our legs, and be faithful to our husbands. Gloria begged her, but Marion mocked her, called her a dyke and a sicko. In her grief and despair, my mother started therapy sessions with a psychiatrist. His whole goal was to treat her for her perversion and restore her to heterosexuality in order to preserve her marriage. My mother went along with it because by then, the culture's profound revulsion of homosexuality had seeped into her psyche, and she believed something was wrong with her. With therapy, her despair deepened. One day when I was off at my second grade class, my mother went into the bathroom with my father's rifle and held it to her head and pulled the trigger. By some fluke, the, the rifle jammed. As a child, of course, I knew none of this. All I knew was that my mother was gone when I came home from school, taken to a place my father told me was called a mental hospital. He explained that it was her head, not her body, that was sick, but the doctors would be fixing it. The doctors were using electricity to fix her head, and then she would be okay. After 18 electric shocks, rather than being restored to health, my mother was more severely depressed than ever, and she was transferred to a private mental hospital up in upstate New York about two hours from our house. At the mental hospital my mother was transferred to, they brought in a specialist, a psychiatrist whose whole focus was the treatment of homosexuals with the goal of converting them to heterosexuality. He met with my father, and by then my father knew that my mother had been with a woman, but he didn't know that it was Marion. The doctor said to my father, have faith, there's hope for her. And then I've helped other homosexual patients. And he gave my father an article about a gay man that he'd successfully treated to become straight. So my father had been thinking about leaving her, but he thought, okay, if she had tuberculosis, I would stay with her through that treatment, so I'll stay with her while she's being treated for this disease. Later when my father told me this, I thought, I thought there wasn't a cure for tuberculosis. But anyway, all right. So um, I'm going to jump ahead in this story, but I'm going to fill you in a little bit. So my mother returned home two and a half years later. She was heavily sedated, barbiturates during the day, sleeping pills at night. My father left for England for a year when I was in fifth grade, and I became my mother's 
caretaker, kind of listening all night for the thud of her falling on her way to the bathroom, this, my nostrils for the smoke of her cigarette fires to put out so the mattress wouldn't go. And she did attempt suicide two more times that year and two more times beyond that. But she did survive. My father came back, my parents divorced, and what do you know, my mother started re-emerging. She uh, got herself way reduced on psychiatric drugs. And what really started to bring her back to life was becoming an activist. She joined Women's Strike for Peace, and she and I started marching together in front of army induction centers and going to marches against the war in Vietnam. And she found a group of women that she could bond with and be an activist with. But she was still depressed because she had no possibility for love in her life. She survived, I left home, I went to college, I dropped out of college, I moved to San Francisco into a house with 14 radical feminists. Gay Women's Liberation met every Friday night in that house in San Francisco. I came out, I uh, walked one day to a phone booth. Some of you may know about phone booths. There are these glass containers. You open a door, you step in, you close the door, you put change in, although I think I probably, to call my mother in New Jersey, I probably used a fake credit card. Anyway, I called her to tell her that, to come out to her from a windy San Francisco hill. So when I told her on the phone about my lover, Kate, who she knew, she knew her as my college friend, she launched into this rant. I don't agree with this. I, I'd never heard her so fierce and so sharp, at least not directed at me. But I didn't yet understand or know any of her own history, so I didn't understand how terrified she was for me. She was actually seeing a female psychiatrist who said to her, if you don't get Hannah back to men, she could commit suicide. So my mother was just terrified. But we were lucky. We were fortunate because it was no longer the 50s. In those ebullient post-Stonewall days of the women's and gay liberation movements, mom was about to take an astonishing leap. Within weeks of her negative reaction, she sent me a series of mind-blowing letters. At first she wrote, I have quit therapy. Women's liberation is going to be my therapy from now on. I have joined an older women's liberation consciousness raising group. It's wonderful. We talk about everything. I sent her a jubilant letter of encouragement. So then about a month later, she sent me this other next letter. I have told my older women's liberation group that I am bisexual. Several of the women had negative reactions. I know over time they will come to better understanding. Myself, I wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and I am so happy to be alive. Okay, I called her, like, what the hell, mom? What's going on? <laughs> All right, so she explained that I had sent her this book, Sisterhood is Powerful. In it, she found about this organization called Daughters of Belitis, which is right across the river from New Jersey in Manhattan, and she was going to their meetings. So, so mom, does that mean you're having a relationship with a woman? I mean, she'd been celibate since for like a gazillion years, as far as I knew. Yes, sweetheart. Well, with several. Um, uh, I, I usually go home after DOB meetings with, with a new woman every weekend. But I tell all the women how it is with me, how long it's been, that I'm into pleasure and being close to a woman. But I'm just not serious right now. It's sex, and it's fun, and it's good. 
wow, mom, this was a lot to digest. I'd never heard that kind of lilt in her voice. Six months later, in the summer of 1971, my mother came to visit. At the airport, she arrived in newly adopted hippie garb, bell-bottom jeans, and an orange and purple tie-dyed t-shirt that I'd made and sent her. She grabbed me in a hug and then hugged my lover, Kate, beaming at both of us. I'm so glad you two are together. One afternoon, Mom and I were alone at the kitchen table. She reached across the table and took my hand. I, I want to ask you something. Do you remember Marion, my friend at University Heights? Mom was staring at me with the most intense expression. The question startled me. I reached back with my mind. I remembered a big-boned woman, tall, with long black hair. Sure, Mom. Mom went on. You and she and I spent every day together for about two years from the time you were two years old. My mother hesitated. We were lovers, she said. A memory flashed. I am standing with my mother in the doorway to Marion's bedroom. Marion has her back to us, and she's sitting at a white dressing table facing a mirror. Her head is slightly bent, and her long black hair cascades down her neck and over her shoulder. She's brushing with the hairbrush over and over and over again. Mom leans against the door sill, and I lean against my mother. We are spellbound, mesmerized by Marion as she strokes with a hairbrush over and over again. There is some feeling in the room that I am too young to name. The room shimmers with it. My mother went on to tell me her story kept secret for so long, her deep love for Marion and my mother's impossible longing to live together. Marion's breakdown and rejection of her, mom's therapy focusing on converting her that led to her suicide attempt. Everything that had happened was now given a new context. As my mother talked, a fury built in me. All those years that mom and I suffered, all those fucking suicide attempts, all the times I found her half dead, had to call the ambulance and they'd take her away, all those pills tranquilizing her into droopy-eyed sedation, all that was now made clear as the aftermath of her love for a woman forbidden and punished by society. Then another thought came, a wave of relief mixed with my rage. My God, there was a reason. It was not our fault. So I, I loved that story so much when Hannah submitted it to us, and I just am blown away by how powerful it is to hear it read as well. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so I think I'm up next, and I'm going to read a couple excerpts from my novel, 
my novel. No, <laughs> not, I'm definitely not doing that tonight. <laughs> uh, no, from my essay. It's called The Family Legacy Ends Here. I never could have anticipated this. Somehow, surviving trauma has freed me. My troubles had been unnameable and largely inscrutable, just persistently malicious whispers in the back of my head. When external circumstances forced me to grieve more tangible losses, something cracked wide open and never closed back up. The terrible shit my brain did to me for so long, I experienced a constant dysfunctional mutter exacerbated by a dreadful deep sinking sensation in my gut. I had irrational, intrusive thoughts about being unworthy of everything. That whisper was so loud sometimes that I found myself completely distracted from whatever might be happening around me in real time. My focus was compromised enough that my graduation from college came as a pleasant surprise. I didn't think I'd end up finishing. I knew my perceptions were not to be trusted, and I knew my fatalistic thoughts didn't make sense. The terrifying thing was that I couldn't stop thinking them anyway. I felt like I was being held hostage by my own brain, but in my, in my youth, I did not know how to verbalize that feeling. At 16 or 17, I tried to tell my father about the noise in my head, and he thought maybe I meant I heard voices. And that wasn't exactly it. While I never experienced auditory hallucinations, my brain simply would not shut off. No diagnosis over the decades resonated. Was it major depression, dysthymia, bipolar two, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD? I was even told ADHD could be to blame. For years, I puzzled over why in spite of my privilege as a middle-class white girl from the suburbs with access to resources like seemingly adequate mental health care that maybe could have made my attempts to keep myself emotionally afloat at least a little bit easier, I continually thought, if I were to die right now, I probably wouldn't mind. My brain kept up a steady stream of irrational nonsense. Ashamed to take up space, I made myself as small as I could, wallowing in self-hatred and alienating peers. As a teenager, I had no idea how to articulate what was happening. The rush of nonstop thoughts crowding my head at the same time I slogged through major depression. Or to describe how awful I felt. Ah, oh, but what's normal anyway? I don't know anyone who's normal. Well-meaning friends and family members would sometimes tell me when I would say that something was wrong, that I didn't feel normal. But I know what my normal is. It's when I can move through life without my mind's constant, painful interruptions causing anguish unseen by and seemingly incomprehensible to others. In his classic memoir of surviving depression, Darkness Visible, William Styron wrote, if the pain were readily describable, most of the countless sufferers from this ancient affliction would have been able to confidently depict for their friends and loved ones some of the actual dimensions of their torment and perhaps elicit a comprehension that has been generally lacking. He quotes William James, it is a positive and active anguish, a sort of psychical neuralgia wholly unknown to normal life. Normal life. I felt validated upon reading those words. In the darkest days, I prayed for a clear and accurate diagnosis, an aha moment that would tidally pave the way for an effective remedy. So that's what's wrong, a kindly doctor would say, and now we know how to treat it, we can fix you. 
and I would be okay. This never happened, but I would learn later that despite the overall great many flaws with the medical model and current systems of mental health care, I'd find it tremendously empowering to be recognized as having a disorder that's treatable. I found dignity in acting with self-determination and pursuing a course of treatment. I'm gonna skip a, a little bit here. Past uh, the description of the rest of my goth adolescence and uh, <laughs> trying meds for the first time. Okay. <laughs> Since the onset of symptoms in my early teen years, I've struggled with the idea of being a burden with guilt and shame. Long terrified that I would end up defeated by my madness, a lost cause, I resent what I think of as the wasted years, the ones I spent deeply mired in the self-destructive thoughts that were truly my only barrier to meaningful participation in life. I grew up in the shadow of mentally ill family members and was dispirited, to put it mildly, when I discovered a family legacy of suicide, which apparently puts one at higher risk of attempting suicide oneself. Though a family member had voiced suicidal ideation to me in the past, I had not known until recent years about a paternal uncle who threw himself off a bridge before my dad was born. And I could not have suspected that dad's only sibling, with whom I was not close, would choose to end his battle with bipolar disorder and alcoholism at age 75, rather than struggle through another year. Suicide turned my world upside down in 2010, and it wasn't an ancestor or a barely known relative whose self-induced fatality suddenly and drastically changed the course of my life. It was my then partner, Julian, who killed himself in my presence at my home, despite my pleas just inches away from his face moments before he took a fatal plunge from my fire escape into my courtyard. I had survived other different types of traumas, like bearing reluctant witness to my parents' altercations through the years and enduring severe bullying in school. Later, there were hugely traumatic events, including a campus shooting at the tiny college where I spent my freshman year, and seeing the Twin Towers burn from the Manhattan Bridge while I was en route to work, from which I was immediately evacuated on 9-11. But this was different. This was up close and personal. This was literally losing my loved one before my eyes as I reached out and grabbed only a fistful of air. Suffering from a chronic degenerative illness that resulted in permanent disability status in his mid-30s, in denial of his alcoholism, and struggling to believe that he could be truly loved and accepted as a person of transgender experience, Julian lost hope. I could not save him, and I grew to realize and accept that although I can do my best to help people in my life who are floundering, I cannot save anyone. Writer and survivor Carla Fine, who rebuilt her life in the wake of her husband's suicide, says that this kind of event can make you feel like your life is over. And really, it is. When someone you love dies by suicide, your life as you knew it has ended. Now you are a survivor, like it or not, immutably and unfathomably. Everything has changed, and suddenly you are navigating a new life. It's going to be an incredibly long and difficult path, and you're gonna need a lot of support as you find your way. I lucked out, I got that support. A great many people helped me. My parents, with whom my relationships improved exponentially following their divorce in my early adulthood and the subsequent formation of a genuine friendship between them. A few other cherished members of both my blood and chosen families were instrumental in my healing. They're here tonight. 
as was my community of friends, those same kinds of queers, artists, activists, and fellow former high school outcasts with whom I had allied myself in my younger years. Several old friends had kept in touch from our Quaker youth group days, and together they were quite literally life-saving in the aftermath of Julian's death. Stepping up to stay with me during the interminable nights in the heavily subsidized co-op apartment I was jubilant to have recently landed, but now loathed. They helped me find support groups, kept me fed and feeling loved, and fielded my teary late night phone calls. I maintain a critique of the bright-sided approach that can be too easy to take towards survivors of trauma and mental illness. I think encouraging survivors to find a silver lining is often insensitive and sometimes downright damaging. But I did find that coping with a sudden debilitating change in my world ended up bringing out a strength I had no idea I possessed and that no one in my life could have foreseen. Through the years-long process of learning to live in this new world, one without Julian in it, my perspective and priorities shifted. I saw this even in the wake of a mistake I made. Too soon, I threw myself into what quickly became an emotionally abusive relationship with someone jealous, demanding, and unwilling to give me the space to grieve who I dubbed in retrospect, the golden turd, but that's not in the book. I'm adding that in. <laughs> Extricating myself from that situation, which I managed to do in less than a year, despite feeling terrified of being alone again, furthered my self-confidence, understanding of self-preservation, and sense of resilience. And that's where I'm gonna stop for tonight. Thank you. And so um, our final reader tonight is Guy Albert to my right, who is going to talk about something a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to say I decided not to use the podium because I like to sit when I read, and also I'm the only one wearing heels. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I have to. Um, I have to. I feel I have to explain my name. It's. It looks like Guy Albert, <laughs> pronounced in French. Um, I'm French Canadian originally, and. Um, it's not that I have a love affair with clarified butter, which most people think about. <laughs> so, um, and the article I'm gonna read um, is called Fix Me Please, I'm Gay. And um, you'll figure out the title as I go along. He looked as if he was straight out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not just one, but both of his eyes were lazy. One never knew where he was looking and if indeed he was looking at you. His voice was a slow drawl that looked, that took great patience to listen to. And he shuffled along at a turtle's pace, barely able to motor himself. And he was seemingly constantly absorbed in some kind of trance. I was just beginning my career as a psychologist when I encountered him. I eventually learned of the unfortunate circumstances that led, at least partially, to his unusual demeanor. Early in his adulthood, he had been lobotomized, a procedure that involved inserting a sharp tool through the eye sockets to reach into specific areas of the frontal cortex, that is, the front part of the brain. 
the now outdated procedure attempted to alter some mental functions to reduce certain mental health symptoms by removing s small segments of gray matter. Unfortunately, this patient's attractions to men were considered a mental illness at the time and a condition that needed treatment. It's unclear whether the lobotomy was specifically meant to address the alleged sexual deviation alone or some other condition as well. But I was left wondering, is this really happening? When I met him about four decades after his unfortunate procedure, his attraction to men was still present. In other words, the attempt to cure him of his alleged mental illnesses did not have the desired effect on his same-sex attractions. He was otherwise debilitated. He was otherwise so debilitated that he had become a ward of the state. I was shocked by the brutality of his early treatment. It marked me for life. To this day, I can still easily recall his poor state of affairs. I was also glad to know that lobotomies no longer existed. Nonetheless, as I've grown to understand, attempts to change people's sexual, sexual orientation or gender identity or expression still exist. In fact, some reports suggest such practices, commonly called conversion therapy, reparative therapy, or sexual orientation change efforts, are still fairly common in the US and around the world. In early 2010, some 12 years after my encounter with this man, a colleague invited me to participate in initiating legislation that would prevent the practice of sexual orientation change efforts, SOCE, in California. I was immediately drawn to working on this effort, remembering my encounter with my former patient years later, er, earlier. SB 1172, or Senate Bill 1172, became the first bill in the world to protect minors from the harms of SOCE by licensed therapists. But the steps to getting SB 1172 passed were tremendous. When we first initiated this effort, we contacted a couple of California Assembly members to ask for their support of the bill. A couple of them expressed interest, but we didn't hear back from them for a while. A little under a year later, one senator, Ted Lieu, had taken up the bill and decided to be its sponsor. A few LGBTQ advocacy organizations became involved in this support, and several other parties also joined the effort. We were thrilled with the sudden appearance of the bill in the legislature and surprised at the interest from several individuals and organizations we decided to reintroduce ourselves in the process by strategizing different ways to get the backing of other organizations and the general public. 
a friend recommended that we start an online pe petition on the popular uh, petition site, change.org, to support the effort. I also contacted an international ag advocacy organization, All Out, which has been a champion in gathering grassroots support for issues around the world. All Out gladly supported our efforts, and they introduced their own petition. Equality California, an LGBTQ rights organization, also started a postcard mail-in campaign requesting that the legislature support the measure. But it, by the end of this petition drive, we had collectively gathered over 55,000 signatures in support of SB 1172. Meanwhile, the largely Democratic California Assembly and Senate passed the bill with a majority vote in both houses. It was, it was then up to um, then Governor Jerry Brown to sign the bill into law. The stakes were high. Many people had put hours, if not weeks, of work towards ensuring the bill was worthy of passing and that it would protect both the public and mental health providers from harm. Legislative analysts, and analysts, professional associations, licensing boards, advocacy organizations, and many individuals had invested time and energy in creating the first such bill in the world. It was a groundbreaking effort, and one that my colleagues and I celebrated with relief and exhilaration. The bill was signed into law on September 30th, 2011. The bill's language indicated that minors in California were protected from sexual orientation change efforts by mental health providers. The bill did not address the protection of adults from these practices, nor did it address efforts performed by lay people or, or religious or secular organizations. I'm going to leave it at that, but tell you a little more about, um, about this effort and what's happening right now. So um, the bill also did not directly address uh, what's, what we now call GICE, which is gender identity change efforts, um, though there is language in the bill that includes uh, gender identity. Um, the term GICE was, I, I think, coined by us. I, I, we can't really tell uh, for sure, but, um, but it's now being used commonly. The American uh, Psychological Association has, has been using it, and um, so it's now being used. And when we worked on the bill in California, there was no such thing as, as GICE. Nobody knew, even knew of of gender identity change efforts existing, but they do exist. So as of today, there are 14 states and the District of Columbia that have uh, followed California's uh, lead. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and the country of Malta was the first con country in the world to actually pass, of all places, Malta. <laughs> Uh, to, to pass uh, legislation. There are efforts in Canada, Australia, uh, the UK, and Germany uh, to pass legislation. In the US, 
There is no single body that oversees mental health and medical professionals. Um, so that's, that's been an issue for us. So we have to go by state by state. Um, but Ted Liu, who was uh, um, a, a state assembly member, who's the, the one who um, helped pass the bill, actually he was a senator, is now a, a member of the House of Representatives. And he has proposed um, a, a bill. He's introduced a bill called the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, uh, which is uh, an attempt to go through the Federal Trade Commission and um, to call uh, conversion therapy deceptive and unfair business practices. So that is an effort that's out there. The bill has been stalled in a very, and a largely conservative Congress, um, so that's no surprise. Meanwhile, my colleague Jim Walker, who um, asked me to participate in 2010, um, or 2008 or something, um, he and I have started an effort to create a, um, a joint statement uh, against conversion therapy. Uh, so we're trying to get all of the mental health and, and medical professional associations uh, to co-sign a joint statement uh, to declare conversion therapy harmful. So, um, so far we have had, well, as of, as of today, as of this afternoon, I just received an email from the American Psychiatric Association saying they are signing on to our effort. Um, so we have 14 professional associations repre representing hundreds of thousands of professionals. Um, so um, it's really pretty exciting. So, um, and then um, I wanted to explain, it's called Fix Me Please I'm Gay because um, uh, SO, sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts um, uh, have been so pervasive that I think people have been brainwashed into believing that um, they can be changed. And it's still happening. Uh, it's happening even in the Bay Area. Um, and, um, and there are people, lots of people suffering from this. Um, so finally, I want to say that um, they tried to make our love, our very identities, our expressions illegal. They tried to call us mentally ill, diseased, freaks. They tried to change us through barbaric practices and methods. They tried to convince us, and they succeeded in convin convincing some of us, that we need to change. Through our activism and our work, including this incredible book, we are making it known that they are the ones that need to change. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, so I think we're going to have time to take some all right. So thank you so much for listening. This was a reading of the book Headcase that happened at the San Francisco Public Library back in March. 
Oh, and we've come to the, the end of the show, so I really wanted to, to play as much as we could. Um, so big thank you to Teresa and Stephanie for the interview ahead of time and for reading. Thank you to Linny and Gee and Hannah for reading as well. And also thank you to Hannah Wilson for sending over the audio file of the recording the recording of the reading. Uh, it was really great to be able to play that and to, to listen to that once again. And if folks would like to get the book, please go to your local bookseller and um, support your local bookseller. See if they have it there. If not, many booksellers can order it. And also, folks, um, if you're unable to do that, you can check, you can order the book directly from, excuse me, uh, the publisher, which is Oxford University Press. So if you go to oup.com, you can order it directly from the publisher as well. It's another option. And you can also go to headcaseanthology.wordpress.com. And that's uh, a site that they have kept up with upcoming events when they tour and do readings at various locations. And coming up next Friday on April 26th at 7 p.m., they will be at the Bureau of general services the queer division at manhattan's lgbt center so there'll be a panel discussion and also uh, they'll be with dr esther rapaport who is the author of the forthcoming from psychoanalytic bisexuality to bisexual psychoanalysis desiring in the real and they're also going to be reading from Headcase, which will also be available for sale and signing. So please do check that out if you are in the area. I'm going to do a plug. I very rarely plug things that I'm <laughs> involved with. Uh, however, I am in a, a queer improv show tonight at the Exit Theater in San Francisco at 8 p.m. It's a group called Light Bright. Um, it's grateful to be asked to perform with them tonight. So we'll be performing with some other groups as well. Again, that's tonight at 8 p.m. at the Exit Theater in San Francisco. So please come by if you are able support the radio station here mutiny radio there are shows here every day of the week uh please check out the schedule at mutinyradio.fm if you're interested in doing a show here of your own that's a possibility it's it's a great opportunity you get to do any kind of programming you'd like we have the equipment here you get trained you pay monthly dues and you get to do a show it's pretty great live broadcast you get to save the mp3 and have that in the archive also if you're not sure if you want to do a, a full-time show you can also rent the space for two hours at a time so please look into that as well if you'd like to support the station please do you can come in and we often have a, a bucket here you so you can donate that's how we keep our doors open also there is a gofundme i believe on the webpage mutinyradio.fm and if you'd like to support this particular show the weekly review uh, you can also do that. We have a Patreon that's been going up for a little over a year. If you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev, folks can support on a monthly basis. Really grateful for all the folks who support. It means a hell of a lot to me. So thank you so much. And yeah, there is a uh, no women's magazine and common thread collective this week. They're on the second and the fourth Fridays of the month. So they will be back next week. And also yesterday was the poems under the dome, the 14th annual poems under the dome at city hall. And that was great. So global Val was there for that as well as EK Keith and diamond Dave. And it was really great to hear so many poets and there are a lot of young folks too. And the, the first young person who read a, read a poem uh, was about, just gender and advocating for trans folks. And it was like, it was really awesome to hear. So <sighs> grateful that there are a lot of young folks out there and their teachers out there and parents and guardians and folks who are looking to make the world much more equitable and just. So thank you for that. Thanks again for all the folks involved with Headcase, the book. Super great, super grateful that it's out there and for all the folks who've contributed. <sighs> and yes, there's a lot. I'm sighing. <sighs> sighing okay so we'll be back again uh next week 
And so, yeah, please do stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. I think that's all I was going to to say for now. And we're going to end up with a song here by Sylvester. And if you go to the James Hormel Center at, in at the main branch of the public library here in San Francisco, there's a photo exhibit that features some photos of Sylvester. So I thought it would be fitting to to play that as our closing song today. Uh, yeah, big thanks to all the folks listening out there and all the folks creating art in the world. It's super important. So thank you. And we'll be back next week. So take care, everybody.
of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is Darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. (laughs) 
Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips. Don't know anything about it. Sorry. <laughs> All so, on my limited view. Yes. Every Tuesday from 12 to 2. Uh, oh, you can if you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. And Google Play. And Stitcher. iTunes. Oh, you already said T- that. Tune in radio. Uh, Stitcher, you said that. Spotify. Oh, my God. There's just so many. And Overcast. Um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain.